0: going through the story of God, recap really fast, we do it every week, God created all things, including Adam and Eve, Adam and Eve chose sin and rebellion rather than to follow the Lord, and in doing so, um, sin entered the world, death came with sin, hopeless situation, God made a promise to Eve that there would be deliverance, there would be salvation, there would be redemption to this fallen world and most importantly to mankind, that would come through one of her children, that God would, God would bring a seed of her that would right all of this wrong, so to speak. So begins the story of God. All of that is in the first three chapters of the book, and then the entire rest of the book is focused on that seed, that, that child, that promise. And we've been following this lineage, whether it be through a flood, through Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, through Israel, through Israel as a nation, a family, and then a nation going into slavery, Moses leading them out of slavery... Um, and across the desert into a land that God promised to Abraham, called the promised land, uh, and then living in this place, but living with enemies rather than purging the place of their enemies as they were supposed to do. And that intermix begins to cause them to stumble and separate from God. God raises up judges who are like leaders and warriors at the same time that deliver the people, but then the people go right back, and there's this vicious cycle of that that goes on for quite a while, and then God, because the people are begging for a king, God gives them kings, plural. And we are in that time now, all right? So last week we looked at Saul, and he was the first king. And uh, now we're going to kind of move forward on that. So as as uh, Deidre mentioned, killer of giants, that's where we're at. That's what we're going to talk about. This is a familiar story for most of you, I would imagine. But we're going to lay into it. So 1 Samuel's where you're at, chapter 17. Last week was Saul. He Some say he was the first king of Israel. That's not true. He was the second king. Who was the first king? God, right? Uh, so David is technically who we're looking at today. He's not going to be king yet, but this is a pivotal moment in his life, without a doubt, as a boy. He's arguably the greatest king, short of the author who is king, short of God. Uh, he is arguably the greatest king. But, um, this is a huge defining moment. And a lot of people see this as a fairy tale or, you know, some kind of historical, uh, myth. But this is not a myth. This occurred. This happened. It's not Jack and the Beanstalk. You know what I mean? It, it happened. It occurred. And many people who do believe it don't realize its actual purpose in scripture. Okay? It's not just a story. So let's read first together. Let's go to 1 Samuel 17. I'm going to look at verse 45. We'll read a few verses here. It says, Then David said to the Philistine, You come to me with a sword and with a spear and with a javelin, but I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts. That means armies. God, Jehovah of armies. The God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied this day, the Lord will deliver you into my hand, and I'll strike you down and cut off your head, and I'll give the dead bodies... Uh, to the, host, uh, the dead bodies of the host of the Philistines this day, to the birds of the air, and to the wild beasts of the earth, that all the earth may know that there is a God in Israel. I love that verse. And that all this assembly may know that the Lord saves, not with sword or spear, for the battle is the Lord's, and he will give you into our hand. Let me pray. Lord, your word is amazing, 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 amazing. Thank you for the awesome privilege of having it. Um, I don't have to go to a temple and wait for someone to unroll the one scroll that's there and, and share it. I, I have it in my hand, have it on my phone, have it on my laptop. Lord, it's 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 everywhere accessible to me, and what a amazing thing it is to live in a time when that's possible. Let us never take that for granted. Let us always remember that when we put this book in our hand, there's blood on it. People died to put it into our hand. People are still dying to get their hands on it. Literally. And yet here we, we have it. Lord, I pray as always that your word stays your word. I, I I'm a student here to learn from you from your word, not not to be the person in, you know, in charge or in front. I know I am. I know I have the privilege of a microphone, but Lord, I, I'm here to learn just like anybody else and I, 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 I put your word above all other words and I say this in Christ's name. Amen. So a couple of titles. Facing your giants, dealing with, overcoming and fighting them one battle at a time. Could be a title for the sermon here. Deliverance from the spirit of Goliath. Receiving divine power to overcome the big enemies and the giant problems against your life. Goliath must fall. Winning the battle against your giants. King Saul thought Goliath was too big to fight. David thought he was too big to miss. I've heard that one a bunch of times. There's a pastor, I'll mention his name because I'm quoting him, named Stephen Furtick. Uh, I don't recommend him. I'm just recognizing his name. But he said this. He said, we use Goliath to mean anything in church. If you're new here, Goliath could mean anything. It could mean we want a good parking space. It could mean we want a healing in our body. It can be we want to stop eating so many potato chips. Goliath can mean almost anything. I'm going to say right from the start, this is not about defeating Goliath in your life. Goliath is not a person Goliath is a person, not a front parking in space. He, he is a person, not a craving for potato chips. So, so let's, let's get that out there first. And if we want to speak figuratively, and we're somebody in the story here, we're never going to be David. We're always gonna be Israel or Saul, one of the two if we're in this story. Or perhaps the enemy army. But we're not ever gonna be David in this story, and, and you'll see why I say that in a minute. So what's the point? Well we're gonna we're gonna see that. But here's your point to remember, it's on the sheet back there if you got one. If you didn't, that's fine. Grab one on your way out. But I put it on there every time it's kind of a a general one statement thought to help remember. When we face powerful threats spiritual, physical, whatever. We tend to put our faith in the wrong things. But it should grow our faith to remember that God alone has already defeated death for us through the work of his son. Okay? So remember that when we get into this. When we face powerful threats, we tend to put our faith in the wrong things. But it should grow our faith to remember that God alone has already defeated death for us. Through the work of his son. So, 1 Samuel 17, verse 1. We're going to roll through this story. I was going to just spit it out and tell it to you and then zero in. But you know what? It's so good. I want to walk through it because there's so many things to kind of point out. Um promise we won't take forever. But we're going to run through it. Verse 1. Now, the Philistines gathered their armies for battle. And they were gathered at Sokah, which means, which belongs to Judah, and encamped between Sokah and Azekah, in uh Ephes meme, Y'all are glad y'all don't have to read all these, aren't you? And Saul and the men of Israel were gathered and encamped in the valley of Elah and drew up in lines of battle against the Philistines. And the Philistines stood on the mountain on one side and Israel stood on the mountain on the other side and the valley was between them. I've been and stood, Molly and I both have, in this valley. It still exists to this day. So I got some pictures of it. Uh, that's it. So you see a mountain on your left and a mountain on your right. That's where this occurred. This is not a fairy tale. It happened. Uh, that's the valley, that's the hill on the left. Now, before you go on, you'll see in a second, you can't see it here, but there is a dry creek bed that goes right along the foot of that mountain. That's pretty much believed to be where these stones come from that David picks up that we'll read in a minute. So that's where the armies of Israel were. That hill right there was the armies of uh, the Philistines and they were battling in the middle. There's that little dry creek bed. So I got five smooth stones at home that I pulled out of there. So anyway, I, I'm not doing all that just to, I'm doing that. I want you to see the pictures because I want you to know this happened. These places exist. So even though I'm struggling over these names and these words right here. Those, those are actual names of actual places. Okay. So it says in verse four, and there came out from the camp of Philistine, of the Philistines, a champion named Goliath of Gath, whose height was six cubits and a span. That means about nine feet. Is that ridiculous? Well, I got this guy who you probably know, the tallest man that lived. I know I heard today that you, you got background with him. <laughs> uh, I forget how tall he is, but he's over eight. Um, so nine is not ridiculous. Nine is not ridiculous. We're not talking about some horror movie with like this big, you know, boiling skin and jagged teeth and drool and junk. It was just a dude, but a very large dude. And keep in mind that to the people of the, the Jews, just frankly, were a tip. They're typically shorter. So you're talking about the average man then was probably five feet, and then you have this dude. Except unlike, the, unlike him who, who, you know, generations and generations later is more cumbersome, uh, this man was a warrior. So he was able to fight and quite a warrior. So he was imposing, to say the least, to look at the guy. So again, i show you the pictures just so you understand. These things happened. This person exists. It's not uh, a J.R. Tolkien story, okay? So verse 5, he had a helmet of bronze on his head and he was armed with a coat of mail, you know, like the uh, uh, knights wore in the Middle Ages, that kind of thing. And the weight of the coat was 5,000 shekels of bronze. He had a bronze armor on his legs and a javelin uh, of bronze slung between his shoulders. So over his back, he's got a big javelin. Strung across his back, the shaft of his spear was like that of a weaver's beam, and his head weighed about six hundred. The spear's head weighed six hundred shekels of iron. I'm not trying to break into all this; you get the point. It's big, it's heavy, it's large. And his shield bearer went before him. Boy, what a tough job that must have been! You know what I mean to carry whatever, however big his shield was. That could not have been a fun job. Verse eight: He stood and shouted at the armies of Israel, "Why have you come out to draw up for battle? Why are you all here?" Am I not a Philistine and are you not servants of Saul? Notice he points that out. You're not servants of Saul. The answer to that should have been no, they're not servants of Saul. Who are they servants of? God, right? But no, choose a man for yourselves and let him, the man, come down to me. You know what? It's Israel's own fault that this man has no fear of them. He's only facing men. And he's a bigger man, you know, and they're following, serving and standing behind a man. And the man that they chose to be their king here when they rejected the king, they already had. We talked about that. Who's Goliath really addressing here, by the way? Remember what it said about Saul in first Samuel nine back in verse two, the last part of the verse, it says from his Saul's shoulders upward. He was what? Taller than any man. So who is it that Goliath is really calling out here? You know, he's calling out their king. He's he's calling out the tall one that stands out above everybody else. And he saying, are y'all not servants of Saul? Send him out here. We don't all have to kill each other. Let's just do this. Just the two of us. Winner take all. Uh, I feel like we're like this, though, a lot of times. I know I get that way. We toss God out of things, and then we start to face extreme circumstances, and we wonder how in the world we got here in the first place. And more importantly, we wonder why our own plans suddenly aren't working. You know, didn't they choose Saul to be king? Why, why is he standing here? Why is he not, why is he not going out there? Why, why is our plan not, well, we got the biggest king in the, in the, in the we got the tall king. Why didn't, he, why didn't he do anything? And notice Goliath says, let him come down to me. Remember I just showed you a picture. The armies were on the hilltops. But he's saying, come down. So where is Goliath? He's walked down into the valley and right up to them. This is huge because he's in a vulnerable position. He's standing in the low ground in battle. That's the worst place to be. So he's he has zero fear or intimidation or whatever. He's clearly not afraid. He is in a vulnerable position in front of this whole army. He's just one dude and he's just standing there screaming at him. Verse 9, Goliath continuing, If he's able to fight with me and kill me, I <laughs> me just straight mocking, then we'll be your servants. But if I prevail against him and kill him, then you shall be our servants and serve us or slaves. That's what that means be our slaves. And the Philistines said, I defy the ranks of Israel this day. Give me a man that we may fight each other and settle this thing. Man, what a mouth on this dude. Verse 11. When Saul, notice it says, when Saul and all Israel. Saul is part of all Israel, but we're pointing out here Saul too. When Saul and all Israel heard these words. They're just words. They're just words at the moment. But when he heard the words of the Philistine, they were dismayed and what? Greatly afraid, man. Trembling in their boots. They got nothing to say back and nobody will go. Nothing to say back and and nobody will go. Verse 12. Now David was the son of of an ephodite of Bethlehem in Judah named Jesse, who had eight sons. Now, we've already looked at this because, remember, Samuel had come and anointed him to be king. In the days of Saul, the man was already old and advanced in years. Jesse, his dad, the three oldest sons of Jesse had followed Saul to battle. So David's three older brothers are there on this hilltop. And the names of his three sons who went to the battle were Eliab, the firstborn, and the next to him, Abinadab, and the third was Shema. Dave, David was the youngest. The three eldest followed Saul. But David went back and forth from Saul to feed his father's sheep at Bethlehem. So David is going back and forth from Bethlehem to serving Saul, and now the battles have happened, so he's going back and forth from that. Verse 16, meanwhile, for forty Days the Philistine came forward and took his stand, morning and evening, forty days of this. It's not made up. How long are you going to stand there and look like an idiot? Forty days. And Jesse said to David his son, "Take for your brothers an epa of this parched grain, these ten loaves. Carry them quickly to the camp of your resident, or take food for your brothers over to the camp. They didn't have like necessarily cooks in the grub line." So families are supplying food and stuff to soldiers who are defending the land. Verse 18. Also, take these ten cheeses to the commanders of the battle. See if your brothers are well. Bring some token. Come back and give me a report. Verse 19. Now, Saul and they and all the men of Israel were in the valley of Elah fighting with the Philistines. They're not actually fighting, are they? They're fighting spiritually, maybe, but there's really nothing they're doing. They're really just... Lined up to fight, but nothing's happening. And David rose early in the morning and left the sheep with a keeper and took the provisions and went as Jesse had commanded. And he came to the encampment as the host was going out to the battle line, shouting the war cry. I think that is hilarious. They are forming battle lines. They are marching out. And, and Josh, some, and some of you guys may have served in the military, so, I mean, this is, this is the moment of war. They're lining in their ranks. They're marching out. Think about maybe when they marched around the... Uh, uh, Jericho and they carry dark, whatever, and they're marching out ready for battle and all that, but what's gonna happen? They're gonna line up again, and this dude's gonna chew them out again, and insult them and spit at them, and then they're gonna go right back. Um, it's really quite pitiful, to tell you the truth. It's, it all looks fancy. But they're just waiting on somebody to step up, and it should be Saul. Verse 21. And Israel and the Philistines drew up for battle, army against army. Same things. army line for battle every day. There's just no warrior. Verse 22. And David left the things in charge of the keeper of the baggage, and he ran to the ranks. So when this is going on, David is in the camp, and David's dropping off his stuff, but then he sees them marching out and going to line up, and he goes racing up. He wants to see the, the battle and what's going to happen, and and. and He's excited. We don't know how old he is. Some say 17. It doesn't say that, but he's certainly young. Uh, probably a teenager is fair. But um, it says in verse 23, as he talked with the people, uh, behold, the champion, the Philistine of Gath, Goliath, by name, came up out of the ranks of the Philistines and spoke the same words as before. I love this. And David heard him. Like, that's almost like saying, you've been talking about my mama for a long time, but I heard you say it this time. You know, he's literally saying, uh, David heard him. Like, that was not okay. Verse 24. All the men. So you got David, now you got all the men. All the men of Israel, when they saw the man. So we've gone from the words to now just seeing him. Now just seeing the guy. They fled from him and were much afraid. So immediately, here we go again. As soon as they see him come out, oh, he's still here. And they take off, terrified. And and, and it, but really, the words there are terror-driven. They are literally terrified. This man has them so defeated. Verse 25, and the men of Israel said, have you seen this guy? He just keeps coming up. Surely he has come up to defy Israel. Now what just changed? Remember he said before, come down to me. Now they're saying he's come up. So this guy is walking now right up into their midst. Like he's gone from being on a hilltop to being right in the middle, calling them down to now walking right up into their face. Forty days has passed. I mean, he's gotten out of where he's walking right into their faces. Listen to me. When you tolerate sin, it will walk right into your camp. Tolerates tolerate sin, it will walk right in your camp. It might seem like it's a long way away at first. It might get a little bit closer. But I'm telling you, if you don't deal with it, it will walk right into your camp. And the king will enrich the man who kills him with great riches and will give him his daughter. What would that make the person if they marry the daughter of a king? You know, prince. I mean, they're entitled to the throne. And make his father's house free in Israel. That means tax-free. <laughs> so your if you'll go deal with this, how big a coward is Saul? If you'll go deal with this guy for me, you can have ta- you'd be tax free, not just you, but your father's house. That means your family name will never pay taxes, and you'll be king one day. Cause you're gonna marry the daughter of a king. Uh, and David said to the men who stood by him, I love this. What shall be done for the man who kills this Philistine? Tax? Wait, wait, what? Translation? What? What? What am I hearing? <laughs> what, am, what did I just hear? That, that's what he's saying. What did I just hear? Say what? <laughs> What's going to be done for the person who kills this guy and takes away this reproach? is disgrace or shame from Israel. What do I get for taking this guy out? Just this dude? Just this guy? I love this. For who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy? Now look what he says. Not Saul. Not Israel. Not even the armies of Saul. What does he say? Armies of God. First time that somebody's brought God's name into this moment. And the people answered him in the same way. Yep, that's exactly what will happen. Whoever kills him. Now Eliab, the eldest brother, David's eldest brother, heard when he spoke to the men. So he's hearing David say, what? And Eliab gets angered. Why is is he getting mad? It makes him look bad. He's one of the guys standing there. You know what I mean? He could go just as easy as Saul or anybody else. He ain't got the guts to do it either. So here's the oldest brother and his youngest brother now is showing up, making everybody feel stupid, you know. Or at least exposing that they're all cowards. Um, And he says, why have you come down and with whom have you left those few sheep in the wilderness? Go back to your sheep, boy. I know you presumption of evil in your heart for you've come to see the battle. Basically saying you're selfish. You're just here for your own thing. Uh, maybe he's still bitter because he's the, also the firstborn and wasn't chosen. Remember, Samuel came and chose the youngest to be king. And he looked right over all the other brothers. He's firstborn. Maybe there's still some bitterness there, but either way, David said, what have I done now? <laughs> Was it not but a word? I just asked a question. What's the deal? I just asked a question. Why are y'all, what are you so upset with words here for? They got this guy out here yelling obscenities at him and picking a fight. They can't handle that. David is just simply asking, why won't somebody do something about it? They can't handle that. And he turned away from him toward another and spoke in the same. So he walked off and keeps asking, what is going on? And all the people are answering him as before. And David cannot believe what he's hearing. Cannot believe what he's hearing. Remember, he's a boy. So if you think Goliath is tall to all the rest of these guys, he is really tall to David. When the words that David spoke were heard, they repeated them before Saul. So the people kind of go back to Saul and say, "Hey, David's worming around." And, and Saul knew who David was. David was serving Saul. Let no man's heart fail because of him. Your servant will go, and I'll go fight. <laughs> Verse thirty-three. Saul said to David, "You are not able to go." I like that. You're, he straight tells him, you, "You can't. You're not able to do this." Not able to go fight against the Philistines to fight with him. For you're just a child. You're just a youth. You're just a teenager. And he's been a man of war from his youth. Is that true? Yes. Is it true that David is not able to go? Yes. Yes. But David has a weapon. David has a weapon. This is not about David seeing Goliath as too big to miss. It, I appreciate the irony of that, but that—that's not what this is about. Where does David's courage come from here? He—he he knows something that the others either don't, or have forgotten, or are totally ignoring. He—he he knows something. It ever occurred to you that some of your hardest times might be God training you for greater battles, not getting you out of something? He might be training you for maybe some of your physical struggles have been training you to trust God through your spiritual ones. Maybe not trusting in your skill uh, is trusting in him. For that battle each and every battle that comes. Uh, look at verse 34. David said to Saul, your servant used to keep sheep for his father. And when there came a lion or a bear and, and took a lamb from the flock, I went after him. Man, talk about some guts here. Chasing down the bear or the lion. I went after him and I struck him and delivered it out of his mouth. And if he arose against me, I caught him by his beard and struck him and killed him. I mean, barehanded here to some degree. At least one hand was barehanded. Your servant has struck down both lions and bears, and this uncircumcised Philistine shall be like one of them. For, why? Because he defied the armies of the living God. Watch this language now. He's saying that this will happen not because of me, but because of what he did. Because of what he did. Look at verse 37. David said, the Lord who delivered me. From the paw of the lion and the paw of the bear will deliver me from the hand of the Philistines. So see what David's saying? He's not saying I trained for years. He's not saying that, you know what, I, I've been equipped with military and survival training. He's not saying all that. He's not saying that I'm a bad man and I whipped a bear and that built my strength up. And, and then I whipped a lion and that built my strength up. So I can whip him too. He's not saying any of that. That's, that's not at all what he's saying. He's not even saying he knew how to kill the lion or the bear. What he's saying is he knew that God was able to do that because God had killed lions and bears. It's not about David the warrior. It's about David the believer and God the warrior. You want to know what David and Goliath is about? That's what it's about. It's not about David the warrior. It's about David the believer and God the warrior. All right? That's the ticket. The key here is David knew God. He had a relationship. You see that word, the living God, in the end of verse 36? That's the key. He's not hope. God is not karma. God is not the force. He's a he. He's alive. He's involved. He knows. He sees. He hears. He's he's a he and therefore he is able. And David knows this. Uh, we used to tour back years ago when I was in the band, we toured with this other band called Disciple, who's still out there doing it. They're pretty big in the Christian rock world, but they had an album forever ago called My Daddy Can Whip Your Daddy. Silly, but that's kind of the idea here that David knows who his father is. You know, and there's no there's no doubt whatsoever uh, of what's going on and what's happening here. And in verse 20, verse 37 uh, says, Saul said to David, go and the Lord be with you. That's amazing. Such an act of cowardice. Go and may God be with you as a spiritual cliche, to say the least. Man, may the Lord bring you peace and grant your way. Verse 38, then Saul clothed David with his armor. He tries to put all this on. It doesn't fit. It's not going to work. Obviously not, because Saul is much bigger than David. And so David doesn't even try. He hasn't even tried to use them. He throws them off. Uh, remember, Saul's taller than everybody else anyway. Of course, they don't fit. And David would have known it, because get this, in 1 Samuel 16:21, it tells us that David came to Saul and entered his service, and Saul loved him, and he became his armor bearer. So David is actually the armor bearer for Saul. So David would have full well known that that armor was never going to fit him. Verse 40. Then he took his staff in his hand and he chose five smooth stones from the brook and put them in his shepherd's pouch. And his sling was in his hand and he approached the Philistine. The staff here, by the way, it's not a shepherd's staff. I've heard a lot of talk about that. It's not it's not the word. It's the word rod. So. If you know Psalm 23, right? Most of us do, I believe. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil for you are with me. Your rod and your staff. Your rod and your staff. They comfort me. There's two different things there. Uh, so back over here, he's not talking about a staff like a shepherd's staff. He's talking about a rod. It's a weapon. A weapon of war. A club, maybe we might say. It would have been something he would have used. To defeat a lion, or to defeat a bear, or whatever else. It was a weapon of a shepherd, but it was a weapon. Verse 41. And the Philistine moved forward and came near David with his shield bearer in front of him. And when the Philistine looked and saw David, he disdained him, despised him. Because he was just a kid, ready and handsome in appearance. Even a decently good looking kid, which is even more annoying. He doesn't look like a warrior at all. Uh... And the Philistine said to David, am I, and he talked, that you come to me with sticks, a little boy with a stick in his hand. Now he's just fire hot mad. I've been 40 days trying to pick a fight with you every way I can, and now you're going to send a little kid out here with a stick. And Philistine cursed David by his gods, so he isn't afraid to employ his gods here and always know there's spiritual forces going on. This is a spiritual battle as much as it is a physical battle, I promise you. The Philistine said to David, come to me and I'll give your flesh to the birds of the air and to the beasts of the field. And then David said to the Philistine, you come to me with a sword and a spear and a javelin, but I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied. I love this. David immediately brings God into the moment. Immediately, purposefully brings God into the moment and he's aligning God's name, God's reputation as that which has been assaulted and threatened. You see that? He's not even mad that you called me a boy and I'm carrying a stick. He's aligning God's name with what has been threatened or what has been. Attacked that God's reputation and it's that same name that's David's weapon here to counter Goliath's very physical sword, spear and javelin. I wonder if we ever think like this. I mean, really, God's reputation has power. His reputation has power. That bringing his name into a battle is amazing power, not just figuratively. Figuratively. Because I promise you, this is a very physical moment for David. And that's a very physical weapon and a very physical person in front of him. It may make you think again when you pray and you say, in Jesus' name, at the end of it. I'm not saying that's bad. I'm saying it's great. I'm just saying, think of it like that. You're bringing his name. It's not a magic spell. You are aligning a living God with this situation. You're you're assigning that moment or the prayer or whatever it is to a living God by name. Verse 46. This day the Lord will deliver you into my hand. I'll strike you down. I'll cut off your head. And then I'll give all the dead bodies of the Philistines to the birds of the air and the beasts of the earth. That all the earth may know that there is a God in Israel. Literally it's all the land. But the earth does know, doesn't it? This is one of those stories that is known around the world. It blows my mind. I've been in 13 countries, and I don't care if they were closed in Muslim countries. Everybody knows this story. Whether they believe it or not, they know. And that all this assembly may know that the Lord saves Not with the sword and spear, for the battle is the Lord's, and he will give you into our hand. It belongs to him. It's God. God, David is assigning the right of conquest to God here, even before the very first moment. The battle is his. It is his. It's his to fight. It belongs to him. It's, It's his. Making clear to the enemy that the person the enemy is facing is someone they don't see You're looking at me as a little boy. You're looking at these armies. You're looking at Saul. You don't see what's really facing you right now. I do. But you don't. You don't. And to everybody who hears, he is aligning that when this story is told, for however forever lasts, when this story is told, God alone who is living and acting is the one who conquers. How many times do we assume a battle that is not ours? Man, I do this. I'm guilty of this one. We assume a battle that's not ours. Or we attempt to get praise or accept praise from a battle we didn't actually fight. It's a dangerous place to be. Verse 48. When the Philistine arose and came and drew near to David, David ran quickly toward the battle line to meet the Philistine. And they charged at each other here. And David put his hand in his bag and took out a stone. Only needed one. He had five. He only needed one. Slung it, struck the Philistine in his forehead. That's another way of saying right between the eyes. Another way of saying, right between the eyes. The stone sank deep into his forehead. He fell face in the ground. So as he's charging, bam, right between the eyes, and he falls straight forward. It says prostrate, which I actually think is almost in a position of submission. He didn't just fall down. He didn't just collapse. He's laid full out. I like to picture him forced into worship at this moment. Uh, verse 50. So David prevailed over the Philistine with a sling and with a stone and struck the Philistine and killed him. There was no sword in the hand of David. No sword. This also foreshadows, and we're almost done here, but the final conflict and the final battle. Revelation chapter 19, when Jesus returns, it says he comes with his armies. He faces the beast and the beast's armies. It's the two of them alone with their armies behind them. But only Jesus actually battles He's the one who goes out and faces them. The armies come afterwards. Jesus defeats the beast without a sword in his hand. He's, it's the what comes out of his mouth with his words he defeats him. Verse 51, we'll finish this up really quick. Then David ran and stood over the Philistine, took his sword, drew it out of his sheath, and killed him and cut off his head. When the Philistines saw that the champion was dead, they fled. Of course they did. And the men of Israel now suddenly got all kinds of, you know, hype. They rose up, they shout, they chased them down, and I can read all that, verse 53, the people of Israel came back from chasing the Philistines, plundered their camp. David took that of the Philistine and brought it to Jerusalem, and then he put his armor in his tent. Some believe that he buried that head uh, in the ground, and that Golgotha, which the word means skull, place of the skull where Jesus was crucified, was where he buried that skull, Golgotha. Some believe that. So when Jesus, some go so far as to say Jesus' cross was on that skull in the ground. Don't know that to be true, but interesting to think about. God here defeats the champion, but don't miss the fact that he gives the battle into the hand of his people. Champions defeated, but the war ain't over. You know what I'm saying? David remembered something these other guys had forgotten. Exodus 14:13. We read it way back when they were coming out. And they stood at the sea, and there was no hope. Moses said to the people, Fear not, stand firm. See the salvation of the Lord, which he will work for you today. For the Egyptians whom you see today you shall never see again. The Lord will fight for you. You have only to be silent. Perhaps David remembered that. David inspired others to fight giants, and we won't look at it. You can look at it in your own time. In First Chronicles 20, verse 5, and Second Samuel 21, 15 to 22, God, uh, there are other giants Goliath had brothers, and some of David's men killed those others. Perhaps David had five stones because he had one for each brother. Maybe they were all five there. I don't know. So, what does this mean for us? Well, sin is Goliath, and death is his army. You want to know what the picture is here? Sin is Goliath, death is his army. We face slavery of sin. We have no hope of escaping death. We have no hope of it. And every time we sin, we're reminded of it. It shouts in our face again. We're not able to win. We don't have the ability in ourselves. There's no champion. Even though we think we have ways or angles or we can do enough good or we think we can put our faith over here or do something, it don't work. None of it works. But Jesus is our David. Without question. Jesus came or David came as a servant. And then turned around and faced the enemy with stones. Jesus came as a servant. And then turned around and faced the enemy with nails. Fact. Just as God was with David, the father and son faced death together. Jesus wins the victory over sin and death for us. And we now chase down the spiritual enemies. The champion is defeated, but there's still a spiritual battle. Um... That's what the cross was about. So stand up with me. We're going to do another one. But I want to, I want to leave you with a thought as we go into it, a little time of prayer too. And we always finish with another song, not to be dramatic, but to give an opportunity for you to think over what we've been talking about today. And at the same time, man, if God moves you and you want to respond, you can always come talk. You can always come pray now or afterwards. I want you to do that. But I, I want to tell you what's most important here is that David had faith in a king, in the king, in the king of kings. David had a relationship, and he knew the creator of all. If that's not you today, that's where you need to start. You you have no chance of beating the greatest enemy of all. You only really have one Goliath in your life. There's a lot of little things we can say, but you really only have one, and that's death. You cannot beat him. And I don't know where you go to sleep at night. But odds are there are times where that enemy shouts in your face. And I'm telling you today, he's defeated if your faith is in the king. And if that's not you, it starts by kneeling and calling him king. That's where it begins for you. Let me pray. Lord, I pray today that if anybody here doesn't know you, that for the first time today they would... Their life would be different. First time today, they would realize that the cross was real, that it happened, Lord, that you are alive, that no cross could hold you, that though you went to that cross for our sin, Lord, you went to a grave because of our sin. But no grave had a chance of holding you. You created all things. You rose and conquered that grave, not because you needed to, but because we can't. And you defeated the, the enemy, Lord. You defeated the champion of the devil, Lord. You defeated death. Take the keys. They belong to you now. You are king on our behalf to, to lead us through that. that we don't have to fear death, God. And I pray today that people would recognize that, surrender their life to you, call you Lord, Lord. Repent and put their faith in you. Let you be king. Help us, Lord, those who believe you, follow you, have given our lives to you, Lord. Help us to live our lives recognizing and knowing that you have done that. That the enemy is defeated and that like David, we can be bold. That we can be bold with our faith because we know the battle belongs to you. You've already defeated the champion. I pray you use us that that our faith would be stronger and stronger. Thank you for your word, Lord, and we ask these things in Christ's name. Amen.